0: Hello everybody, since Scream is currently enjoying a successful run in theaters, it's a wonderful time to revisit the masterful scores from the horror franchise's first four films with the Scream original motion picture soundtracks Mm -hmm. box set. It's a mouthful, but I got it all out there. Available on four LPs or six CDs, each collection is housed in the unique jacket which folds out into a ghost face mask. Speaking of the new film, the brand new score can also be ordered today on vinyl in a reflected mirror board jacket or on CD or digital formats. Own the musical legacy of Scream. Visit your favorite retailer or shop the label store directly at V a r e s e s a r a b a n d e V-A-R-E-S-E-S-A-R-A-B-A-N-D-E.com, where Kingcast listeners can save 20% off for a limited time with the code Scream20 at checkout.
1: And hey, while we're uh while we're giving out uh discount codes, let's uh let's do a little one for our corporate overlords over at Fango. It's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you a hundred pages of exclusive, carefully curated content, honoring horse past, present, and future. These articles and interviews, some of which may be written or conducted by Vespi and I will never be published online. So the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So as promised, here's your little discount code head on over to fangoria.com to subscribe and while you're there make sure to enter the promo code kingcast to save 25 percent off your yearly subscription
0: now on with the show
2: hi my name is stephen king
1: He's gonna break! Bad
2: Rob! Bad Rob! You guys wanna go see a dead body? Well, sometimes, death is better.
1: Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Folks, very exciting episode for you today. As longtime listeners know... Early in this show's run, we were lucky enough to score what I I believe was the first lengthy on-the-record interview with Glenn Mazzara, a guy whose work you have almost certainly taken part in <laughs> over the past 15 years. Uh, he he worked on The Shield, he worked on The Walking Dead, Damien, a ton of projects. And back uh, some years ago, he was working on a Dark Tower series. And he came this close to making it with Amazon, and and he came on the show and told us all about it. And um, quite frankly, that episode sort of put the KingCast on the map. And we were thrilled the following year when Glenn returned to sit in on a commentary for The Shining that ran over on our, our Patreon. At that point, we could have done the the polite thing. And, and let Glenn go on with his life and <laughs> and, and stop answering our questions. But, uh, you know, in our tireless pursuit of all the Stephen King knowledge there is to gain, we, we had to hit him up just one last time to discuss another Unmade King project that he worked on, which would be Overlook, a prequel to The Shining written by Glenn, which would have been directed by Mark Romanek. He's here to tell us about that one today, and it is, therefore... My distinct honor to once again welcome the great Glenn Mazzara to the KingCast stage. How are you doing today, Glenn?
2: Very good. Thank you so much. What a great introduction, and it's great to be back. Thank you.
1: It's a pleasure to hear that I've written a great in, uh, <laughs> intro from, from someone who knows writing so well.
2: Maybe not too well, since we're talking about, you know, I, I'm the one guy who can't get a Stephen King thing made, and now we're talking about my feature as opposed to my show, so maybe not too well. Uh, but there are times a uh, charm. though. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and, and it's nothing to feel terrible about. You know, every great working screenwriter out there has 10 scripts that they love and adore. Uh, it just mm-hmm. has Guillermo del Toro, you yeah. know, that, that should have been made that weren't made for whatever, you know, arcane reasons, uh, within the system. So this is absolutely not a knock on your talent. I well, love, look, let me, let me I say love,
2: this, yeah. that, that Guillermo, once tweeted a list of all the projects that did not go. He forgot the project that I wrote for him. No. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, Jesus, Guillermo. So talk about being a loser. Like, oh, I didn't even make no. that list. Oh, my God.
1: Oh, Lord. Well, we're going to have to have Guillermo back on the show to explain himself. <laughs>
2: yeah, uh, that was not, a, a movie Glenn. called Hater. That was a movie called Hater. But mm, anyway. What was it about? Uh, A hater. It was a, it was a, um, I think his name was Dave Moody. He's a novelist, a British novelist, and it was about a rage virus breaking out. And uh, it was good. It was fun. It was fun.
0: Mm. Nice.
2: Where do we start with this? Mm.
1: Um, I guess I'll say that the first time I heard someone had written a, a prequel to The Shining, I was beside myself. I could not believe that anyone would do such a thing, even with. Before the play, like that, that text that that King has out there in the wild of of the the backstory, the overlook and some of the people that have, you know, fallen prey to it over the years. I just couldn't imagine this happening. And uh, I think it was around. I, I think I might have found out when I got the script and then I st- sat down and started reading it. And uh, this is when people ask me. I read a lot of screenplays, a lot of unproduced screenplays. And when people ask me. um what some of my favorites are, Overlook is very near the top, if not at the absolute top. This is just such an excellent piece of writing. No, I think you. it flies in the face of anyone that might say, like, how could you do a prequel to The Shining? Or, like, what, what could you possibly investigate? I'll tell you what, it's Glenn Mazar's Overlook, which is basically the midway point between there will be blood and The Shining, and it fucking rules. Mm. I, I love what you did with this, and I'm what well, we both are very excited to hear yeah. how this well, how this came to be and and what happened along the way
2: yeah. well thank you that's that's really <laughs> very flattering thank you um, so you know years ago this was an open assignment at Warner Brothers and um, uh, Brad Fisher and uh, Jamie Vanderbilt, of a group called mythology entertainment where the producers and and they had done, you know, shutter Island and Lita Caligridis was part of that that group at that time. And, um, they were going to produce this for Warner brothers. So they sent over before the play. Okay. And if people are not aware of what that is, it's, it's a prologue that King wrote to the original shining novel. Okay, and when Stephen King wrote The Shining, he was not the Stephen King. And from Mm. what I understand, an editor told him the book's too long. We're cutting this. And and so that sort of that prologue was still part of the rights of The Shining that Warner Brothers had. So I guess it was just sort of sitting in a drawer. I think it had been published in TV Guide before The Shining miniseries (laughs) aired. And maybe it had been published one other place. And it's a series of vignettes of each decade from, you know, the building of the, the um, hotel up until Jack Torrance arrives, right? There's different, you know, and you get some, some backstories of, of some of the characters that you see wandering around the hotel in the film. So they were sending this to a number of different writers. And from what Brad has told me, most of the writers came back and they wanted to do a story about the Grady twins, Mm -hmm. right and um i was the only one who came back and said well i'd like to do the founding of the hotel about the Mm -hmm. original guy on the mountain yeah you know bob t watson because the the prologue opens with that and here's this guy he's sort of a bit of a robber baron and his family and fortune are in ruins i thought that was interesting and and you mentioned it you know i thought oh i've never seen you know we've all seen british victorian ghost stories but i've never seen you know there will be blood the horror movie i guess, I guess. that i guess you could say <laughs> there will be blood is a bit of a horror movie but but um, <laughs> i i hadn't seen that so i thought okay that's interesting and we, we started um, talking about it and that and that's how i got the assignment so i went and i broke the story i pitched it out to warner brothers and, um, there was a, um, an executive there named Sarah Schechter and Sarah is now runs, um, Berlanti's company. It, it was interesting cause we, I really worked hard on the script and, and Brad and, and Jamie and Lita gave me great notes and everything. And we were really happy with this draft and Sarah gave notes on this first draft. Now you're not reading that draft. And, uh, she said, there's no way Warner Brothers is going to make this movie. This is exactly <laughs> what you pitched. This is exactly what you promised. This is exactly what we bought. There's no <laughs> way they're ever going to make this draft. Hmm. And I said, well, what are they going to make? And she said, something else. Come back with something else. And th- that was the note. It was very hmm. vague. But there was just yeah. something about it that she she felt it was Good, but not great, or maybe it didn't go deep enough, or mm-hmm. i i I'm still not clear, but I felt like, okay, I have to give it another crack, so I went off and I wrote another draft and and this is my favorite draft, and this is the one that you've read here okay mm-hmm. so so I did several versions of this this uh, version, you know, several drafts of this version. they were interested in that, and they started looking for they started to either attach. They were thinking of attaching talent or attaching a director. And I remember they sent it to Brad Pitt and there's a scene in it where um, a child dies early on. And Brad Mm. actually said, this is too upsetting. I don't want to play this. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So he passed on the, the scene at the dinner where the kid dies in the kitchen. Right. You got, I remember that which is so, the
0: scene that hooked me. By the way, when when I was reading this, going, okay, this is good, this is good, and then when he gets to that scene, I'm like, holy fuck, I love this thing. <laughs> yeah, they're not yeah. fucking around
2: out here. So it's so,
0: a, a, a wussy, is what I'm saying.
2: So well, I'm not going to say. I'm just going to say it was, <laughs> it, was, it was not for him. It was not for him. Then they thought maybe we could attach a director, and what happened was a lot of directors were um, unwilling to go into Shining territory. Most right. of the directors that people were approaching said. You know what? There's no way you can film this and not be compared to Kubrick. There's no way you can. It, it's just too big a, a shadow. It's it's you know he casts too long a shadow. What? Why would anybody want to do this? But then um, Mark Romanic was interested. He liked the script, and he 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 also wrestled with the 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 Kubrick of Wall or whatever. And so then we started. But he had a different approach, whereas mine was very much inspired by um king's prologue which was set in the gilded age which if you look at you know the shining that you know the the famous photo the 1921 photo right you know the character of bob t watson in the prologue you know it it, to me the shining does have its roots in the the gilded age um, Mark wanted to back it up. He wanted to sort of make it, you know, further back. And uh, to be honest, if he was sending me images and stuff, we got very, very close to um, the Revenant, right? The mm. Revenant, Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We started getting into that type of tone, you know, and, and we started pushing there. So I did a draft. I did a few drafts. I was working on Damien at the time. So I was, I was going to set and shooting Damien and then I was coming home and I was, I was rewriting this. And then, and then I just think what happened was Warner Brothers was simultaneously developing Doctor Sleep, mm. so now they have two things in contention. They have a prequel to The Shining and a sequel to The Shining. Well, the sequel is based on an IP. This was you know this was just based on the prologue. The other one, so they they went with Mike Flanagan's mm. Doctor Sleep, and then you know my script died we've gone back to Warner brothers a few times to say, well, let us do this as a, uh, a TV series.
1: Mm, right.
2: And then I think the rights were tied up somehow with, um, Bad Robot. yeah. With bad robot. What's the, what's the show that, that they did the, um, Castle rock. Yeah. There was some, somehow the rights were tied up in that. And so then I heard that they were going to do a crack at, um, they were going to do that and I'm not sure where that is. So I was not involved with that, but, mm. um, I would have, yeah. I, I was very interested in doing it as a TV show at one point when the film died.
0: Would it, it, at that point, would you have like kind of chucked everything you had done and just started and no. essentially done your own, like before the play, or would you have used this as the, the basis for the show?
2: No, I, th- I think there is a, uh, you know, I would have used before the play as a, Model and said every um season would be a different decade in right. the life of the hotel. So let's start at the beginning, let's start with the origin story, let's see that being built. You know what I mean? That's really right. interesting. But you know, one of the things was I actually got some of the blueprints of overlook, you know, uh, that are online and somebody, some fan I think has you know, sketched it out or whatever. It's really interesting. I don't know if it's based on what the actual, how the set was actually mm. built or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, the starship enterprise, you know, that's, it's, it's fascinating to people. <laughs> people mm-hmm. are, so I said, let's see that getting built. You know, let's, 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 uh, really explore that. I would have done the story of the Watson family uh, over the course of season one, you know, say eight episodes. And then you could go in and do some of the, you know, there's in the fifties, there are a number of, uh, there's a, a thing in the prologue about uh, before the play about, um, um, mafia hitmen and and, yeah. and yeah. The mafia kind of staying there or whatever. So that would be interesting. So you, you could kind of bop in and then maybe, right. you know, do, you know, Grady and stuff, you know, yeah. just before Jack. So, so I think there's, there's a lot of stories there wandering sure. around those, those hallways.
0: And Wampler would have been waiting with bated breath for the whole uh, season based on the blowjob dog costume guy. I'm so
1: fascinated with that character.
0: <laughs> I need to, I need to know more.
1: You're right. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, why not? Yeah. I would watch two to three hours of a prestige drama series about that guy <laughs> and his whole world and whatever his deal is.
0: Maybe you could get Brad Pitt in that, <clears throat> that role, that one he wouldn't shy away from.
1: The most striking thing to me about this draft that I've read, mm. which is the 2014 draft, or maybe one of them, but yeah, the specific April, one April we know, where, of April of 2014, mm-hmm. Yeah, is it is legitimately frightening.
0: Yeah. There are like
1: what half a dozen killer killer fucking scares in this
0: movie
1: right um within the first
0: four pages we see our first uh ghost and that's you know a a cannibal wife you know kind of off in the woods as the uh the family the watson family the the at least the patriarch it's bob watson his two sons boyd and richard Mm -hmm. uh and they're you know uh they're on the the road to what would eventually be their build site for the overlook and they and uh, the the young boy is established as having the shine, and uh, and he sees this uh, this image. It's an almost an A twenty four image, right? Because it's like in the woods. This is like like nineteen, what eighteen? I think is the uh, it was when the the script opens. And nineteen yeah. eighteen, yes. Yeah, and so it's like either there's a he sees like an overturned, you know, uh, destroyed wagon, and all these little things just uh, uh, stack up to make it a deeply unsettling read. And I can only imagine what that would have visual visually turned into, you know, cause I, you could picture it so, so clearly in your mind's eye.
2: One of the ways that I wrote this and and thank you for saying that. Cause you know, when I write horror, I take it very seriously. Yeah. And I want it to be scary on the page. And, and so I really, you know, and I think we talked about this when, when maybe when we uh, discussed the shining, but you know, I really studied the shining. Yeah. You know, because if and, and, you know, famously, you know, King doesn't like that film, but the film works, you know, and and maybe it doesn't really hold together from a story point of view. I understand a lot of his criticism, but it's a, it's it's an amazingly effective horror movie. And so I really kind of studied how Kubrick shot that, how, you know, he moves the camera and stuff. And so then I was very much trying to capture that on the page, not trying to direct on the page. That's not my job, but to just sort of imply that there's um, a presence and a shifting POV and a creepiness. And, and so I really, and I think this script really taught me how to write Uh, you know, I mean, I learned a lot of that from Frank Darabont on, on, on walking dead, but then I think this was also a way for me to to really focus on you know getting horror right, and and I think mm. that that's it, it's it's tough to do because it needs space, it needs tone, it needs time to do that. Right. And and I think a lot of people when they write horror, they sort of write darkly lit action, but I really wanted to create the sense of dread that I saw in the original movie. Yeah, no, well, you right. absolutely did that. Yeah, and the, yeah.
1: the like the tone comes through and. Would, would you mind if I read a portion of just the first page of this out loud? Yeah,
2: whatever you want. Sure. Okay, I
1: just want to, and I, I want to do this, I was I was going to do this anyway, but this is a good point to do it, because I just want to capture, like, how cinematic Glenn's writing is here on the page, and this isn't something you see in every script, I don't know how many, how many screenplays y'all read, but um, they are not often this well written, I will I will say that. <laughs> fade in exterior Rocky Mountains aerial shot day an ancient lake mirrors a snow-covered mountain we fly over the lake toward the peak right over a tree-covered island as we veer to the right we look directly down onto a forest thick with aspens a small break in the trees reveals a winding road cutting through a scar on this otherwise virginal land exterior meadow day the road snakes through grassy fields The mountain's still lying ahead. Exposed, we now see the road is dirt, unpaved, filled with holes and huge puddles. Treacherous going. Exterior, mountainside road. Day, the road twists along the side of a mountain like a vein. On it, a long line of old-fashioned vehicles. Model Ts, old-time trucks, dozens of cars being pulled by horses and mules. Frontiersmen drive the exhausted animals like an invading army, making its way out of the 19th century and into the 20th. Superimpose, 1918. Mm. that's how you open a script (laughs) son oh it's so good well and
0: yeah and you can clearly see that's you know the the visual language is telling you right up front like okay you're in the shining right this is the world of the shining that you know yeah Yeah, you you picture that shot if you know the shining and then you go but instead of finding the road you, you you find that unpaved you know dirt road that's full of holes and suddenly you're just in a different you know, time period instantly you're in a, it clocks with you, you know, in, in a way. So it's, it's very great. And you do a lot of nods to Kubrick's visualizations throughout the whole screenplay. But mm-hmm. what I love about it is, is uh, it, this, what you were doing here seems to be finding that, that middle ground between Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick, right? Because you have, like there's references to room two, 217, two, 217, instead of 237. There's the croquet mallet comes into play at a certain point. You yes. know, there's all these little moments where you take the iconography of Stanley Kubrick, but you bring in story and plot from Stephen King, mm-hmm. uh, which yes, I, thought, I, I felt really nice.
2: I felt I had two masters. You know, and and part of my goal as a writer is when I'm adapting, I take it very, very seriously of trying to understand what is the tone of or what is the the, you know, novelist trying to say. So I really felt like, you know, in a toss up, a lot of times King would win over Kubrick. (laughs) You know, there were some questions like, say, you know, 217 or 237 King wins. It's his world you know what i mean but i think that that the the type of storytelling or the pace i was i would give to kubrick you know what i mean to create that sense of dread so right. it was i remember having these these conversations with brad fisher the producer i wanted to make the shining movie that king would like Right. But I didn't want to, you know, erase Kubrick. I mean, Kubrick, uh, you know, is, 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 again, it's an incredible, it's one of my favorite films. So I felt it, it, was, it was a tough assignment.
0: Would you mind doing like a just kind of a basic overview of the plot since almost everybody listening to this hasn't read it? Or do you want us to kind of go through and beat by you beat go it with through
2: it? I'm, I'm not sure if I remember it enough to to. <laughs> sure. it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy, that, you know, but I don't want to oversell it. So we could just go through it like you, like sure. you want, or well, go through sequences or whatever. Well, I, I like. think it's
0: important to like establish that. Um, the, the big set piece at the very top of the movie is um is a flood that that wipes out and kills almost the entire party uh except for bob boyd and richard watson you know the mm-hmm. uh, boyd watson's like the apple of his father's eye he's the good son 12 years old richard watson's kind of meek and shy and scared he's 8 but he he's also the one established uh, as having uh, the shining they never mention they never call it that but it's established very early that he's had visions before this trip and he's having them now and uh and they all witness the death of 60 plus men uh, and almost all of them are laborers so you know it's people of color it's you know uh, the irish i assume in there as well you know just the people that that would have been deemed lower class citizens at that at that time um and uh, they are all killed uh, in this in this flood and is what i love about that is it sets one it's a giant set piece it's like you don't shy away from showing that shit that's not like okay we got to take all this out for budget it's like the impossible happens right here you mm-hmm. have your impossible right, set piece in right. the first 15 uh, 15 pages of the script, uh, and it's graphic. It's brutal. People are impaled on trees. You know, uh, it's, it's not, it's not a pleasant, uh, death for, for these. It's not just like the rains come and, and, uh, and they're, they're swept away. It's a very brutal start to this trek and it's, you know, kind of sours the ground even before they reach the land of the overlook. Um, which I really like, maybe we can start there and talk about that.
2: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, thank you for saying that. Um, one of, one of the questions is that, okay, well, what, you know, if he's building the hotel, you know, if Bob is building the hotel, you know, what are the ghosts? What are the mm-hmm. initial ghosts? You know, so we, we get the sense that there were some settlers or something from the, from the first scene you talk about, but we sort of, right. I wanted to, I felt deaths that Bob T's hubris had been responsible for. Right. Right. And here's a guy, you know, you think about, you know, the, the, the men of money who built this country at what expense you know we all know of, you know people slip into their debts while building a dam or a bridge or something like that you know and so so i wanted to show that this guy could not tame nature and he doesn't give a shit you know and he could yeah. pay the price or whatever and he's still gonna he'll just bring in more men and they're just gonna build it so so i i um
0: and there's no repercussions for for yeah, it, other exactly. than it's other just, than his lost time, you know, of, of uh, building this this thing. Yeah,
2: right. So so to me, you know, he was it, it, it. These these first scenes just show, you know, he's 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 written as you know a general at the head of an evading army, you know, and and then you know I I, I write. I think there's a line where after all the bodies are hanging on the trees and everybody's been washed away, you know, it's it's like Pharaoh's army laid low, you know, mm-hmm. like he's he's the you know the Pharaoh. So I, I wanted to give a sense that this guy believed he he had some grandeur about him, and and everybody else was just you know fodder for his dreams, if you will.
0: Right. It's also worth noting that uh, you introduced a character here named Kilgallen, uh, mm-hmm. who is kind of the I guess the foreman, he's the, the, the guy running everything Yes, r- running all, all the people. And, uh, he, he comes back, you introduce the, uh, everybody there's a grand ceremony as the overlook is opening, you know, uh, a little bit later and you introduce, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Richard, the young boy sees the ghosts of all the dead, uh, yes. drowned, drowned men. And so by, you know, you have this juxtaposition of, the grand ballroom where, you know, it's filled with socialites and rich, the rich men and Congress people and, you know, the, the top
2: yeah, tier it's of society night. It's yeah, yeah. And,
0: and the specter of all the dead that, you know, paved the way for this expensive, fancy, you know, hoity toity feast you know, are, are around and, uh, Kilgallen ends up coming in a play later. You know, this is a, a spoiler, but he, he shows up later at, at, uh, at the bar <laughs> with, uh-huh. um, uh, with Bob T Watson and, and reveals that his first name is Lloyd and he is Lloyd, the bartender. Right. Um, and that's the origins of the bartender. Um, but it's not done in a, like a cheesy way. You know what I mean? Cause you, you don't really feel like this is like, Oh, now we have to explain everything. There's still so much, much mystery about the overlook and, and, you know, but you do have these little moments where you can go, Oh shit. Okay. So that's where that came from.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I'd love to, you know, we could talk about it later, but you know, he's, he's in the bar with Lloyd and, um, Lloyd's and somebody sends over a drink and he Mm. goes over into the corner and it's this guy, McCready. Mm -hmm. And McCready was the, the guy who, you know, was abandoned in a Donna party type setting on the mountain, you know, and he gives this speech and we can talk about that speech later. In my mind, you know, if we had shot this, I would have loved for McGrady to be played by Jack Nicholson. Oh Lord! You know that's why there's just one speech, and he's sitting. I wouldn't know if you know Jack. Right. What kind of shape Jack would be? I <laughs> right. was like, well, will just bring him in for one scene and have him give him a speech at the table, and, and right. he, he can even be mostly
1: it. in shadows if he wants. Yeah, yeah
2: you know, but, a big, like a yeah.
0: uh, mountain man beard and everything. Yeah,
2: yeah. So just, just people. You know, just kind of a, a sense of weirdness and 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 repetition. You know, the right. flood that we're talking about. I mean, think about the flood. In you know the Shining and the movie with the the you know coming out of the elevator, so right. so those waves of water. There's a there's a a sense of is this the same? Is it different? Is you know there's there's a loop that goes through in the Shining. Mm-hmm. So I was very careful or very cognizant of trying to incorporate that into the script in weird, surprising ways so that it didn't feel. It didn't feel like um, Easter eggs. It felt more of, you know, that that it would like it was a spell being a cast a cast of you. I like horror that does that. That you're like, is this supposed to be this way? Am I seeing what I'm seeing? (laughs) I I enjoy films like that.
1: And the flood itself is, you know, to your mention earlier of the pharaohs. It's it's biblical. There's something uh, biblical, and I, I don't know the word, um, <laughs> but uh, there's destiny in it
0: uh-huh.
2: somehow. Yes. Uh-huh.
1: Like the second you start up that mountain, if you're fucking around in that little patch of ground up there trying to get something done, you're just doomed, basically doomed. And this yeah. goes for the McCready's, it goes for the Donner Party, it goes yeah. for, you know, whatever, whoever these guys are that are, are you know, Bob Watson in this case. You and, know, you, and you tie it to the to land, which I think the is the land. Which, yeah.
0: yeah which is really interesting it's not the it's not the overlook the building that's haunted it's it's the land itself yeah
2: right so so I'd like to talk about that so so yeah. that was yes. a conversation so so obviously one of the biggest tropes is you know Indian burial ground
0: okay mm-hmm. right
2: I wanted to avoid that. So in my mind, it felt like there was an ancient evil, probably unexplained, tied to this mountain so that the Native Americans would even avoid this mountain. They would be like, yeah, don't go there. That's, right. There's just an ancient evil tied to that land. And and it's been there forever, and it's going to be there. And so so that way, it wasn't necessarily, you know, whoever trips over the mountain comes in contact with that but there's it's it's a little bit more of a ancient cosmic horror in a sense it's not cthulhu Mm. or anything but you get what i'm saying i didn't want it to just be um neat burial ground i feel like that's tired and and we've done that and seen that and there's even a reference in the in the um, movie about an India burial ground, but right. I just felt like, oh well, that guy just doesn't have all the information. Right. You know yeah. I mean? So, so that to me was why is the Overlook evil? It's because the land beneath it just has some some primordial evil sitting under that mountain.
1: Did you right. flesh out that thought thought like any further on your own, or were you just happy to leave it and say it's just evil? It's a fucking evil mountain.
2: To me, it was like, just evil. I, I, you know, like did I, you
1: have a source for it in in mind? Is it like specific to the whatever that presence?
2: No, is. I didn't. You know, if I was going to do this, if I was going to, uh, to be honest, I I hadn't read Dark Tower yet at that point, mm-hmm. right? So, so it is conceivable that. That, well, there's no way that, you know, if I was doing this today, I would say, okay, what is that evil? What is it tied to, you know, something like that. And so I would probably go deeper into the King verse and try to find something there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. But then maybe you're switching out of that story or whatever, but no, yeah. I, I felt for the movie. It was uh, To me, I felt like that was, I was satisfied with that answer. Well, you know? I mean,
0: well, and, but, but what I love about it is it's not like a curse where you, you trespass and then you're just fucked. Like you could leave, you know, it, it's more of a, a temptation, uh, into your darker self. And that's kind of what your script evolves, uh, into the story with the family, mm-hmm. um, at any point, if they had just picked up and left, you know, uh, after the death of the the older son or whatever, you get the feeling like once they were gone, they would have been okay. Right. So, Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, I, it's, well, I wondered about that, actually, hmm. because I was like, if they all did, you know, at the point where it's
1: um, Bob T. Watson, and Sarah and the uh, and uh, Richard uh, Richard. Like if they got in a car and tried to leave the mountain, would the mountain let them leave?
2: No, I don't think the mountain would let them leave. Interesting. But I think if somehow they did leave, or I think the mountain would keep them there. You know. But let's say, I don't know, they somehow ended up in San Francisco. I don't think they would face that horror in San Francisco. I think it's geographically located on the mountain. So I don't know how they would get off the mountain. And, and mm-hmm. they don't get off the mountain.
0: You know? no. no, No, they don't. I think this is a good place to move into um the introduction of Sarah Watson which is the wife who joined the group as the overlook is being built and you have this really great moment where Bob T is showing her around the skeletal like uh uh Uh, not remains it's the beginnings the skeletal beginnings of the uh of the overlook and as he's describing what each room is going to be the colorado lounge the marble staircase as he's describing you have have it written in there very again very visually where those things materialize and then you know within a, a few beats you're cut into the grand opening ceremony and the hotel's built i uh,
2: I want to give credit that was sarah Schechter's um idea you know she because because i think i was (laughs) one of the things she was worried about again this was a movie you know she's like because i i was delaying the um um construction you know it was a lot about the construction so i was trying to get to the reveal of the Overlook Hotel later. I think in my earlier draft, I talked about that. She said, no one's ever going to make this, right? (laughs) Yeah. And she said, well, we can't make a movie about the Overlook Hotel and not have the Overlook Hotel in it. Yeah. So I was like, Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. So she goes. Maybe. So so I'm like, But but it's all about the building of it. And she said, Well, it's a movie. You have these other tools. That you, and then she pitched this, you know. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, Yeah, you know, that's great. I, mm-hmm. I wish I had thought of that. So so then uh, you know, I took it and, and worked on it or whatever. But that magical that as he's describing, oh, we're gonna put this over here. There's gonna be a staircase, and then suddenly the staircase is there, and it just that it's a bit of a time dissolve. Um, you know, she's a brilliant woman and she just kind of threw that out there and I grabbed it, you know, so a good idea, you know, hopefully you're lucky enough to work with producers and executives that, that can, you know, help right. you find the, find the path. Nice.
0: Now, and in, in this moment, we're introduced to a bunch of people, including uh, James Paris, who, uh, is envious of Bob T and, and uh, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like the height, this, this is everything that this character has been working towards. He's put everything he, he's owned, you know, his wife's comes from money and he's leveraged everything that he's built as himself and through her funds and wealth into this thing. And it seems to be working. It everybody loves it. It's gorgeous. The top tier of society is there. Um, And then, as I said, you know, we have that moment where Bob T is giving a big speech is kind of victory lap and the specter of all the deaths that have happened to get him to this point are there. And that, like, foreshadows his older son. Again, the apple of his eye, uh, he starts choking on a piece of meat and Mm -hmm. it leads to the scene that turned Brad Pitt off of the movie uh, and uh, uh, and hooked me super deep into the script, which you know, this is this is the this is the days before the Heimlich maneuver, right? People didn't know what to do with a, a choking boy, and they they take him. To, they're just like hitting him on the back. It's not working. They take him into the kitchen, and like a, they pull in like this medical student.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: you know that I guess was in the in, in the crowd, and and he tries to help him as the boy's turning purple, and and by doing so, he he does a little surgical uh incision on his neck do you want to kind of get into the scene and, and kind of how you decided to escalate it can i interject one note here
1: sure real quick? i think that it's funny that while boyd is choking that bob t is like just spit it out you know <laughs> i can imagine daniel Plainview from yeah. there. there will be blood like doing that exact thing with yeah. you know his son, you know, just sure.
2: just spit it out, boy. Yeah. Well, well, that that's the thing is, you know, he's he's giving this speech in front of the congressman and everyone. You know, this is the, the big thing for the for the state and everything, and it's his moments. You know, he's on yeah. stage. And Opening his night. his son start, Yeah, right during his speech, and his son starts choking. So they pull they pull the kid into the kitchen and they put him up on on the you know like a table, and they've just grabbed this medical student. And he's going to make a little incision, you know, like a little tracheotomy incision or whatever. Mm-hmm. And boy grabs, you know, onto the knife with both hands, you know, twist it from side to side, slice and open his own throat, yeah. you know, and he's sort of possessed and he's, he's, you know, just ri- basically, you know, covering, you know, severing his own carotid artery. And mm-hmm. the parents are screaming and the, the blood is flying everywhere, you know, and, and um, the parents are watching this and it's just this horrible thing. You know, I, I call it, you know, blood drips onto the floor fr- with a shattered plates, a dark operating room, a twisted butcher shop. Mm-hmm. You know, it's dark. <laughs> <You> know, it's, <laughs> and Yeah. And, um, you
0: yeah. don't see many even horror movies have a 12 year old, you know, cutting open their own throat viciously. You know, yeah, the, well, the maybe, first act.
2: Yeah. maybe there's a re- maybe that's the reason this wasn't made, <laughs> but but you know, I mean, the idea that he's kind of possessed in some way or something else is going on and they're unable to stop him, and then and then it just you know throws the family into this very, very dark place, yeah. and and also. Who's gonna to want to stay at that hotel? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's what happens That's, on opening night. Yeah. So, um, is
0: that is that how you 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 pictured it? That it was more of a uh, a possession thing? Because I kind of read it as a desperation thing, where he like is so desperate for air that he just essentially stopped pussyfooting around with this no, thing. I, and, felt, and, I yeah. felt that
2: it was I felt I felt that the um, the hotel was in play. You right. Know? I always felt okay. like the in these kind of moments, I feel like the hotel is is some malevolent presence so something, something is
0: accelerating at
2: that point. So how that escalated or just got so crazy. I, I, you know, you just get into the scene and and sometimes I'm like, well, what would really happen and what haven't I seen before? There's probably a reason we haven't seen that before, (laughs) but um, you know, I I feel like it's kind of my job as a writer to try to push things, you know, and, 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 People could tell you to pull it back or whatever, but, um, you know, you need something big here though. I mean, that's, you need,
0: because this is the catalyst that kind of sets the doom for the rest of the family in motion is, is this thing that you do right now. Yeah.
2: And I, I think, I think also if it's done, if it's done gratuitously, this is obviously a conversation to have with the director or whatever, but if it's done gratuitously for, for, you know, shock value, it can turn the, the, you know, you can lose the audience, but if it's done as a sequence that you're in and it's unfolding and it's just, you know, like, like something like one of those things that we've seen in horror movies, you know, if I guess what I'm trying to say, if you just throw it at the audience, you know, for shock value, and it doesn't mean anything, you know, it feels cheap. Right. But there's nothing well, wrong with doing something, you know, very dark and upsetting. And, and, but, you know, at this point you're invested in these characters and then it does have a consequence. And so it's tied to the, the movie. You're just kind of making a, 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 you know, a very, you know, dark kind of movie. But yeah. I think, I think I think it could play. I think the audience if if you do it right i think the audience would go with you if they felt if 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 you were doing it seriously and you earned it right. well
1: on that note i just i want to remind everyone that mark romanic was going to direct this and for anyone who's unfamiliar with with his work uh he came from music videos he did some of the 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 most iconic music videos of of the 90s which sounds like I don't know. I don't even know if fucking music videos are a thing anymore, but like that was, that was a huge deal. There was, there was so much talent pulled, including like David Fincher that was pulled out of music video filmmaking in the nineties who have, have gone on to become, uh, big directors, uh, romantic directed, uh, free your mind by en vogue. Um, he did "Rain" for Madonna. He he worked with Jay Z, Lenny Kravitz, Nine Inch Nails. He did the "Closer" video for Nine Inch Nails, which basically makes him a hero in this household. <laughs> and 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 he did um, Johnny Cash's uh, video for for "Hurt." The the cover he did, of,
2: mm-hmm. uh-huh.
1: uh, you know that Nine Inch Nail song. This this man is a uh, he has a very particular vision. And uh, unfortunately, he's only brought it to bear several times uh, on the big screen. His his directorial debut was actually in 85. He directed a movie called Static. Does anyone know about Static? They don't, but that's that's that was his debut. Uh, but he did one-hour photo with mm-hmm. Robin Williams, which yeah. I fucking love that movie. And he uh-huh. did never let me go, which is yeah. another just insanely good piece of work.
0: Yeah, and t- uh, and think of the tone of those of those movies and imagine yes. them working within you know this this uh, story. You know, yeah. I think it was a good fit. You know, I don't know, like what did you think, Glenn? Whenever they brought his name up, was that something that you were like? Like, you know, great fit for the tone or we'll have to see what, what his ideas are. Like, what what
2: was your stance? No, no, no. I thought I thought he was a great fit. And he was, you know, and he was, like I said, whereas many other directors were afraid of going into the Kubrick territory, he saw it as a challenge, you know, yeah. and, and, and I, you know, enjoyed working with him. I thought he had great ideas and it was very supportive. And i was sorry we never got to make the film. He would have yeah. done a great job
0: because he's so great at that foreboding tone, oh. even in one hour photo, which, you know, which is on its surface, it's, it's a, it's a thriller in a weird way. You know, it's kind of a, a melancholic thriller, I guess. And there's, there's something mm-hmm. about, um, you know, about that tone that fits really well here. Um, and especially with what you do with the characters and that's something I'd love to get get your thoughts on because it would have been really easy to make Bob T the new Jack Torrance, right. Where here's this Strong headed guy, alpha male dipshit, you know, asshole guy uh, who only doubles down on it. But like after the death of his son, you you pull the rug out from from under expect, you know, with our expectations, you you soften him with the death. You don't harden him with the death. And like what actually keeps him there isn't his ego. Uh, He I think he's ready to go with his wife and his, his other son and just pack up and leave this behind. But what the overlook does with the hotel or the land or whatever the spirit does is he is shown his his dead son. And in his mind, he goes, if I leave this place, I leave my son. Uh-huh. And and uh and it's such a great manipulation tactic. It it it's a great like character, you know, reversal from what you think is gonna happen. Um and uh yeah, so I'd love to get your thoughts on making Bob T kind of the anti-Jack Torrance in this moment.
2: He loses his son, you know, yeah. and I just thought mm-hmm. he would have we wouldn't have cared if he didn't care about that son. You know, Jack doesn't lose his son. Yeah. You know what I mean? Jack Jack, you know, is can kind of be a developing threat, but really the Jack Torrance character is, um, you know, is a problem for Stephen King. He feels that that character in the movie is, you know, crazy from the jump, as he says, you know, he doesn't feel like he's developing, you know, and, and you also, you know, I will say you don't really get a sense of, of vulnerability. So seeing Jack Nicholson as a threatening character it's fun and scary and creepy and, and, you know, you're trying to figure out what's going on. But I felt like we had seen that story already, you know, and so I didn't want I wanted people to really kind of lean in and, and say what's going on in this in this script, you know, Overlook Hotel, not just, oh, it's <laughs> it's the same story and, and, and just, you know, period dress. So I really Definitely. want needed to see him be vulnerable, you know? And one of the things that you get from King's Prologue is that this is a guy who, you know, had it all and somehow he lost it. It didn't come together for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and he was really filled with regret and just feeling that he didn't get something that was his due. You know, something like that. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. At the time that I wrote this, I had been on Walking Dead you know, and, and had left walking dead for various reasons that I'd rather not get into here. But, you know, (laughs) walking dead, walking dead was a a success. And then I was kind of coming off and trying to figure out like, okay, uh, you know, I was a a part of making that show a success, you know, kind of stepping in at a crisis moment. And, and now I'm, You know, what comes next and why why didn't that work out the way that I had perhaps thought it was going to work out in some way or something, you know, and so I was dealing with a lot of questions of my own career and my own, you know, status as a writer and all of that. So so one of the things I try to do when I write a script is I always try to write characters from the inside out. So I think, you know, this guy's loss is probably a metaphor for some type of loss I was feeling at the time. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I think uh, I was feeling vulnerable and therefore my main character was feeling vulnerable. I don't I don't know how to separate myself from my character sometimes. So, so not that this is the Glenn Mazzara show or something like that, but but it's just it's just a way for me to emotionally connect to what I'm writing so that I can feel it's it's honest and meaningful. So that's I've never really thought about that before. So I hope that doesn't sound you know self indulgent (laughs) or anything, but it's just kind of an interesting thought.
1: No, it's pretty fascinating. That's right, folks. It's time for that mid-roll ad break once again, brought to you by the good folks at Athletic Greens. We've been using Athletic Greens literally every day here at KingCast HQ, and not a moment too soon. Eric and I have let our bodies grow weak and sometimes diseased during this quarantine. Isn't Disease? that right, Eric? Well, yeah, I got—I got COVID.
0: You did. I—I—I've been disease-free, but—but but the weakness I totally feel. You're absolutely right on there. Okay.
1: Well. We've been taking this uh, Athletic Greens stuff, and it is uh, quite a kick in the pants when you take it every day. What is it? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all the things – Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day, that's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to, you know, look out for your health.
0: To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and, all capitals and underlined, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash kingcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash kinkask to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It's good stuff. You should give it a shot. Uh, yes.
1: Well, we do, but everyone else should give it a shot as well.
0: well uh, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking to them. I know you give it okay. a shot. We've okay. already established we drink it every day. That's
1: true. Every, every single day. Uh, we're strong boys now. Let's get back to the show. And uh, I guess from that point on, after Boyd dies, Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty breathless all the way through to Mm -hmm. the end. I guess the next thing that happens is that after everyone is cleared out of the hotels, the opening night is probably goes without saying a disaster because a kid (laughs) died on a table in the Mm -hmm. uh, kitchen. Uh Bob T, Sarah and their son. Uh, Richard Richard
0: you keep forgetting Richard I keep Richard.
1: almost saying Robert for some reason which <laughs> is I uh, maybe because Bob T I don't know you know we've already established that Richard has uh, some degree of the shine like he can see these he can see dead people for lack of a better term yeah so Bob T goes into you know having been reminded that his he still has a son and he should probably be taking care of that one too he goes in right. to see um, Robert Rob mm-hmm. fuck Richard. <laughs> he goes in to see <laughs> I don't know why I keep doing that. He goes in to see Richard, and Richard is pretty fucking wound up. Mm-hmm. Uh there's a great payoff here where earlier in the script we 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 see that the two boys sleep together in bed and that um mm-hmm. you know Boyd kind of puts his hand over or his, his arm around yeah. Richard while he's sleeping. Yeah. And he's uh very
0: protective of his little brother, yeah.
1: Yes. And and in this scene, uh, uh, Richard going to sleep for the first time without Boyd rolls over, faces the camera, and he's going to sleep. And then fucking Boyd's arm comes over. <laughs> it's so good, and it's handled with like one line in the script. Like, and it just oh, mm-hmm. it fucking oh, it's 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 skin crawling. Well, shortly thereafter, Bob T comes into the room and is just like, you know, look, we're going to move forward, and he's he's trying to you know make his son feel better his remaining son and the kid has just you know had a had an encounter with this with this ghost so bob t starts going around the room and he's like is boyd hiding over here i can't do it not in daniel plain Plainview vo- plain view <laughs> voice but he's like looking behind the curtain there's no one here and he's like oh is he over here then and he's you know looking behind a piece of furniture nothing there and he's like oh perhaps he's under here and he looks under the bed and boom there's fucking boyd you know <laughs> under the bed like shh <laughs> another great fucking scare in the same sequence it's it's so good and now uh bob t is infested with this same belief that they cannot leave the overlook because mm-hmm. boyd's presence is is still there
0: yeah
1: from that point on you know and, now it's it's and- each of the fam- each of the characters in the family just getting rope doped by this hotel that are like showing them one horrific thing after the last after the next
0: well and you know and and i'm kind of drawn to a line from the green mile it's like he's using their love it's using their love against them mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. which is such a great you know a great idea and a great turn where and i, I again i love that it's love that keeps them there instead of ego you know, that that to me is such a great subtextual addition that completely turns once again expectation, uh, but it, it also it makes it more relatable. You know, you could relate more yeah, to, to that idea. Yeah. Glenn, do you have any, any
1: extrapolation on that thought?
2: No, I think you're right. You know, I wanted to write a, a family drama, you know, and and um, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm really <laughs> what are you laughing at? What? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm imagining the
1: the uh <laughs> the the freezer that comes to life shortly thereafter this and turns into like a fucking abattoir where, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm thinking yeah. of that, that in no, relation dead, to you being like, kid I parts wanted everywhere to write a family drama. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, but,
2: but, but, but there are, but, well, listen, I remember, you know, um, I, I worked on scenes between the husband and wife, you know, where they're trying to figure out how does their marriage survive this? You That's know? fair. Yeah. And, yes. and he has sort of used her, her money to build his fortune and he's gone through that you know Mm -hmm. um there's the scene between the so her sister eliza visits you know and is trying to get her out, and then Sarah, the wife, stays. She's going to stay with her husband, you know. And so it's so Eliza's like, "You got You got to get out of here." You know, your, your child just died, and she's like, "No, I'm going to stay." So it's about duty. So they're you know kind of trapped in this misery and this horror, you know, as they, you know, what was supposed to be this great hotel now they're being abandoned in the same way that, or they're being you know stuck together in this empty you know, place in the same way that the Torrance family was, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, but this is, this is, it was important for Sarah to make a choice to stay with her husband as opposed to, you know, Wendy being, being kept there by Jack, you know, what I yeah. mean? like a prisoner or whatever. So yes, I have the the scares or whatever, and, and it's a high bar to try to keep shining scares, um, scary or whatever. But, um, it, to me it, this was this was very much about the the family you know and uh, and we could talk about the ending when we get there because I kind of felt mm-hmm. like that um said a lot of what I wanted to say right well, I do have a question here about
1: eliza there's a there's a scene in the uh, around this around this time there's a a sequence where it's sort of cross cutting between locations mm-hmm. and Eliza is in room two seventeen. And and using the bathroom, which well, not using the bathroom, <laughs> she's taking it, she's taking a bath. Yeah. And and you using know, this, the bathroom, but not taking a pee-pee. Ultimately, mm-hmm. this will you know, Eliza in room 217 will come back in a later portion of the script. Mm-hmm. But in this sequence, she she hears a voice and, and she's kind of startled in the uh in the room, but nothing particularly scary happens to her in there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the fact that she ultimately dies in room two seventeen, is mm-hmm. this just foreshadowing that? Or are or do you believe that the space that room two seventeen is occupying is itself like the epicenter of this evil force? Like like why is it nodded to this early in the script?
2: That's a good question. I didn't think it was the epicenter. I think I think what I'm thinking about is because otherwise, it's just you're kind of playing with the iconography in this sequence. Yes. And I'm also, I'm just looking at the script. Bear with me. That Check out uh, 43, page 43. Yeah. There, there are sequences in the script. There are several sequences in which we need to keep the hotel alive and move around the hotel sure okay so if you look at the scene i have you know bob t is entering the gold room he crosses to the bar there's no one there mm-hmm. he pours himself the bourbon right we're setting up that something else will come you know and 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 maybe he hears someone choking he turns around You know, did he hear something or not? You know, now we're moving down. Look, before we get to 217, we're moving down the hall. It says exterior, second floor hallway, night camera moves down the hall and stops at room 217 and then Eliza Mm -hmm. crosses into the room. That camera movement moving down the hall is a Kubrick movement. Yeah. Okay, so as we kind of, you know, create a sense of building dread or create a sense of slow fear that we're starting to wander around the hotel disembodied by ourselves. Okay. Now we're starting to fall under the hotel spell. We haven't really Mm -hmm. done that yet. So I'm sort of. Your
1: camera angle has not. Yeah.
2: Like it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the hotel is getting restless. You know, it's starting to, you know, it's 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 going to want more. It's already, you know, it's isolating the family, what's it going to do next kind of stuff. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm gotcha. sort of looking at it from that aspect. You know, I mean, look, we're 45 minutes into the script. I needed to introduce room 217 because otherwise it would be too little too late in a way. So right. I sort of have this gotcha. and obviously her in the bath and then we'll pay that off or whatever, but then you have the famous, you know, woman in the in the bath when Jack goes into that room, yeah. Um, in, in the Shining, so I'm I'm sort of starting that story.
0: Yeah, gotcha. well, it's it's also once again playing with expectation because if you know the Kubrick movie or if you know the the King book, you you you're in room two seventeen and you're like, oh my god, is this the girl? Is this gonna be the girl? She's gonna die in this? Right. She's, she's drawing a bath, she's drawing a bath, and then she doesn't. And you know, and that that's such a you know, you're you're pl- again, playing with the expectation, which I love. And that's one of the things that I, you know, I think keeps this from just being a um uh a, a, well, a member berries like, hey, remember this thing that you liked? You know, because you're mm-hmm. you're taking that expectation and you're turning it on its head, you know, continually throughout the throughout the script. And you can also call this foreshadowing for what comes comes mm-hmm. later it it, it it you mentioned the um uh bob t hearing choking and he's hearing the phantom sounds of of uh, his boy mm-hmm. dying that's you know the death sounds of his child uh and it strikes me like did you watch hereditary and then go like god damn it this is like there's a couple of little moments like that because uh, it's charlie's uh uh clucking that she does that like signals that she's there. Um, and weirdly enough, the image in my mind when I read your draft, cause I didn't read it until after I saw hereditary was whenever uh, Boyd is like cutting into his own throat is kind of that like Tony Collette face that she has at the end when she's kind of sawing her, head off spoilers. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, but like, it it strikes me that Ari Aster has that kind of, you know, plays in the same tonal sandbox that this thing exists in. And I would say
2: that I, I mean, I really enjoyed hereditary, you know, Um, um, I really did. So I felt, um, you know, one of the things that I think I, I tried to do that I don't, and you could point out if I'm wrong, but I Mm. don't think the shining really plays with sound as much and it, 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 yeah. it's not it's it's really Yes, ha-
0: but like not sound score, yeah, yeah
2: yeah score but it doesn't really have a lot of audible scares in right? this, in the way that say you know other horror movies do you know yeah. and and i i will also write sound i did a lot with sound in damien hmm. and um You know, we did some of that in Walking Dead. I did do a lot of sound in in Damien. So that to me was uh, probably just me developing something here that Mm. I, you know, I think that makes sense. And I didn't always want something visually represented again, because you want to, you know, you know, did we, did we hear that? Didn't we or whatever? And you can play with that. And I I felt that would be something good to add to this universe.
0: Right. Do you want to talk about the freezer scene, Scott, since we, you brought it up? like is there
1: yeah well i'm looking i'm looking forward in the screenplay and and the next major not sequence but n- the next maybe major, major chunk is like you know sarah discovering the library
2: right that, that mm-hmm. clearly
1: isn't there and and oh, the um,
0: introduction of the maze and the, the hedge yeah, animals and, and stuff. Bob, yeah. and i
1: i yeah bob discovering the the maze slash the topiary animals and i yeah. i do want to pause on that one yeah. for just a second, because I, I think it's very interesting that you've incorporated both the Kubrick edge maze and, and the topiary mm-hmm.
0: characters. Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know. Maybe this is a question you've already answered just in the, in the sense of needing to serve two masters, but is that what's going on there Why you're blending those two things?
2: Yeah. Because the other thing, the other thing is that uh, to me, I felt that the overlook changes. Yeah. Okay, that that it could, you know, maybe you're walking down a hallway and you're like, I haven't seen this hallway before. Was this hallway here Mm -hmm. yesterday? So so to me, there was something about the wickedness of the hotel that it wasn't set in stone. You know what I mean? One of the things is that, you know, if you think about in The Shining, um, there's there's something online that there's a, a window in the room where. Jack is being interviewed and yet there could be no window there because it's an internal room or something like that. You know what I mean? So, so, so the idea that the house is constantly, that the hotel is constantly developing so that you could both have the maze and the topiary and maybe one day you have one or the other, or or you never know what you're going to get. I like that very much. And um, I remember King wrote me an email and said, yeah, I like that too. I wish I had thought of that. I was like, I was like, is that not in the, in your work? Like did I, you know, so I, I, it's one of those things that I, I can't tell. I thought I was adapting something, but then maybe I just kind of created more than I thought or something. I don't know. But (laughs) the idea that the, the hotel is malleable I think fit this universe. And so it, and, and, and it made sense to me. It made sense right. to me of how I could kind of have a little bit of everything with it, it in, in a way that I wasn't just servicing fans. I was actually, <laughs> Oh, this, this hotel is really fucking with us. Right. You know, I thought right. that was interesting.
0: And you do something very interesting with the maze where you, you essentially say that the center of the maze is where Boyd's grave is, right? Yes. So the the you solve the maze by getting to the center like you're you're finding the like the original trauma within mm-hmm. the the overlook's history like not the land's history but the hotel itself's history this is the first mm-hmm. the the first like real tragedy in the in the walls of the overlook uh and it is the very center of the maze which uh is represented there i thought that was really cool thank you i assume the gardener was was meant to be uh a spirit too, like any at, at this point, yeah. it feels like anybody, of
1: the gardener. Yeah.
0: It, it, yeah. Anybody that's, uh, that's working for the hotel, you know, cause by the end of it, spoiler, all the people that we know that have died are now employees. Essentially you're, you're you this is an anti-capitalist, uh,
2: story is what I'm getting at. Is that you? <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the things, one of the things is that I think, you know, he, he, um, the gardener's name is Harry and <laughs> he, doesn't remember him you know he's, yes. like, he's like have i have i do i know you you know uh, who are you and a guy right. says i'm harry sir you know harry price you hired me last week i did yeah. so again bob's not sure but then but then at the end you know bob meets somebody and they are like do i know you you know yeah. and so there's a way that the hotel starts assuming your identity or erasing your identity or you're yeah. fading away so this was cu- sort of setting that up you know right right you know what I was just thinking about that I'd like to mention is that if you guys – have you ever been on the Culver lot? It's now the Amazon Studio lot.
0: Mm, yeah, don't think no, so. I Culver don't think City. so.
2: And so there's that, there's that big um, uh, hotel, uh, the big uh, building yeah. on, on, um, on uh, Washington that is like the Gone with the Wind building it's yes. called sometimes or whatever, that yeah, yeah. plantation building. So I had an office in there when I, <laughs> when I wrote this script. And I would go there late at night to write the script. And so the the hallway is very, very long and polished and looks like a hotel. And that building is supposedly haunted. And so I would go there at night Hoping I would see some ghosts and they could help me <laughs> come up with something <laughs> for <from> this, <sky. laughs> you know. Right. And, and everyone's like, "How can you write in that building at night? It's so creepy." And I'm like, "Well, I'm writing a horror. I need the help or whatever." <laughs> but uh, no, no ghost ever showed up. So, hmm. but unfortunate, yeah, unfortunate. yeah. I would have loved that.
1: Anyway, the freezer scene is is sort of in this next. Block of time. It's not. It, it's not in that. Like I look at the the library and the maze sequence as sort of their definitive
0: mm-hmm. sequence.
1: This is I'm mm-hmm. like further sinking into their their madness. And the and the also freezer, build
0: and also building the hotel. It's important to to mention that yes. like this is a weird bonding experience. Like they seem to be as a family, sort of gelling together after the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Where Richard is helping his dad. They're building the boiler in the boiler room, and you know they're essentially finishing the hotel themselves. And it's weirdly seems to almost be working as a therapeutic thing, which I think is interesting. Cause you're setting them up as like, okay, things are getting better for them before things are about to get a lot worse. And they get a right. lot worse starting at the sequence that Scott's on. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. This is maybe my favorite sequence in the movie. Uh, it is full blown Hellraiser shit, just in terms <laughs> of the amount of blood and, and gore that would have to be on screen. And when I think of this script, this is the first sequence that comes to mind. Like this is the one I wanted to see on screen with romantic directing. And basically Sarah finds herself in the, the freezer of the hotel and she has encountered Nora, who is like the ghost maid right is now, sort of making the rouser. Or, and or, also
0: the, the woman that, that Richard saw in the woods at the very beginning. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, well,
1: well here, she looks at her hand. This is Sarah. She Sarah looks at her hand. It's smeared with blood. She backs away, brushing against a rack of shelves lined with sides of beef, each wrapped in heavy butcher block paper. An arm swings down from one of the sides of beef. It's small and frail, that of a little girl, and covered with bite marks where pieces of flesh were gouged out. The girl's hand hangs limp. Sarah studies it in horror, then looks around the room. All of the sides of beef are now severed body parts. Arms, legs, hands, torsos, all half eaten, exposing the guts and bones beneath the rotted flesh. This leads leads to a thing where she's trying to get out and now the door is bleeding and now all the walls are covered with blood. Um, I think it's the most outwardly horrific and certainly the most bloody scene uh, (laughs) in the entire movie. And it's happening here right at the at the midway point of the script, more or less. Do you have any thoughts on on writing this sequence?
2: Yeah, I remember. I needed something. I felt like I needed something at this point. I felt like like I was. I just needed to jolt things. I felt like you know the story was working. the 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 um, we understood the hotel. We um, the family was coming together. I, I was starting to feel settled, and I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of shake things up. You know, I like this Nora yeah. character, and I think this. This, you know these severed parts and and the 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 you know half eaten body parts. Uh, you know is is we're going to get to the cannibalism of this McCready party, which was trapped on the island uh, on the mountain. So mm-hmm. you know we're starting to get to that, and also the bleeding door, the bleeding walls. To me, is is um, sort of a precursor to the blood coming from the elevators. Right. You know. So I'm starting, I'm starting to, I'm playing with the imagery, but I really just wanted to show, you know, to focus on Sarah. I I think I had been losing her a little bit and everything. Mm -hmm. So I, and I just wanted to shake things up and, you know, I'm I'm glad to hear that you feel I did that. (laughs) Yeah, you did.
1: Uh, It sounds like it would have involved a lot of blood. Would have been a very red scene. Yeah. Um, Eric, do you want to pick up here? Take turn for a
0: minute? the next big thing which i uh it's another twist on expectation that i love is that it it doesn't turn into um bob t you know going crazy and trying to kill his wife or anything like that's that's again Mm -hmm. what your expectation is oh you know we're so used to now having prequels or sequels that are just going to be the story skeleton of the original thing uh but what instead happens is uh uh, Sarah falls down the stairs and breaks her neck, but, mm-hmm. but doesn't die, right? Yeah. So she, but she paralyzes <laughs> herself and the weather outside is too bad to get help. So it then it becomes, again, this kind of quiet thing where they're, you know, uh, Bob T and his kid are taking care of uh, Sarah as best they can, you know, propping her up in bed with a broken neck, you know, and, and, and I, I don't know, it's, again, I just love that. I think cuz it's really fucked up, it's uh, it's really sad, but it's also again going against expectation. So is that was that your your concept here was to not just pull a um, uh, a repeat of the family dynamic that we saw in in uh, the shining?
2: Yeah, I want to I wanted to show that, you know, you know she gets hurt, and they and and one of the things is that you know this is going to sound obvious, but when you have a character die, then you can't do anything with that character <laughs> unless you're going to have her become a ghost or something. Right. But so in a way, it's more horrible if she doesn't die. You know, and it's oh, just yeah. it's just that he's he's um, they're trapped that much more. Right. You know, and and it's and and you and know she's trapped but, in her own body. yeah Yeah. and so and it just it just kind of amps things up and so i felt like you know that's what that's what i was going for you know but she
0: falls down the stairs because of she sees boyd she's the this is the first time she sees boyd Boyd. yeah so she's yeah Yeah. and and he's like talking to her and, and begging her not to leave and you know and all this stuff and then you have kind of a what i would assume would be a callback to um you know jack making out with the with the hot bathtub lady. And then, you know, you re- realize that she's a decomposing corpse. Cause mm-hmm. it's the same thing here where she hugs her son and, and then like something's off and she looks pulls back a little bit and sees him. And he's a decomposing corpse at this point. And that's what like totally freaks her out and mm-hmm. sends her running, which is again, it's, it's uh it's using, it's using love to, to twist the knife, you know, and that that's at every point, every horrific scene that, that I can think of in your, in your project is, you know is abusing love abusing their love for each other and mm-hmm. you make a big point you know in especially in the latter uh the late act here the third act you make a big point about how it's clearly being established that the overlook is feeding on families like more than anything yes. it's not about killing you know a random person or feeding on fear it is it is destroying families and uh and that's what this thing does
2: mm-hmm. um that's right and
0: and, uh, you know, from the McCready family that ate each other to, you know, they ate all their kids to survive and then died, you know, ultimately, you know, to this family, to what would happen with uh, the Torrents later in the Grady's that this thing, it's, it's all about destroying, you know, happiness in the form of, you know, that fa- familial connection.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think uh, you're absolutely right. For me, this was, yeah, that, that's that's what it was about, you know, yeah. and because I do think that's part of what The Shining is about. You know, I mean, there right. is there is Jack dealing with his family. Jack's father's abuse has, has abused him, or whatever. Jack had broken the kid's arm, you know. And so, right. so it's just this family trauma, and and I guess you know the original sin here is Bob T's hubris. But then after a while, they're just trapped. They just can't get right. out.
1: I have what may be a very
2: stupid question.
1: <laughs> Go ahead. But um, I assume that I, I assume given the Just given the sheer amount of uh, research that you do on the stuff you write, which has become apparent over Mm -hmm. the course of the many conversations we've had with you, that you, you must have looked into a neck breaking injury and how that might impact your character here. Am I right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I have a brother who's an orthopedic surgeon. Oh, easy peasy. <laughs> so that comes in. Okay, uh, that, that's that's you know I've called him about Walking Dead. I've called him about a lot of stuff. <laughs>
1: so
2: yeah, he I sort of okay. you know, just text him like, hey, I need something here, and he's like, he doesn't understand what I do, but he he's always happy to answer questions. You
1: know. Great. So yeah. my so what I'm wondering is you can't heal a broken neck, correct?
2: No, I don't think so. No.
1: So is she in pain just permanently now? Like there's no healing. Not, it. You could not, keep not her the Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess not below the neck, but yeah, you she know. probably
2: does have some pain. But I think, I think, uh, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I'm not sure hmm. why. What's what are you trying to? Get? I mean, she's in well, enough. No, emotional I mean emotions. it's just. It's, <laughs> it,
1: yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to gild a lily. I'm just curious what the mechanics are of a neck breaking incident, basically. Like now, if you broke your neck, they're going to hold your head still. They're going to take you to the hospital. They're going to put like, but, but I told you this was a stupid fucking question. (laughs) Is there any coming
0: back from a broken neck? I'm sure that under the right. I think if she
2: severed her spinal cord or whatever, you know, or some had some nerve damage, she'd be paralyzed. But I think you can, I think you can, um, um you know, break bones in your neck and still survive. And so, right. so it, it, so you could have broken bones or whatever. I don't know, but I think if you damage the spinal cord, that would yeah. affect it's definitely the, the mobility. Very you definitely, well. You definitely I established.
1: Doing,
0: I will continue doing my backyard stunts and will
1: not <laughs> worry about
0: this. Yeah. You'll, you'll be fine. Yeah. You established that she's paralyzed, paralyzed. Um, yeah. She's but but then after they move her to the bed, so maybe she wasn't before they carried her up them stairs, you know, all by themselves. Uh, but we'll, we'll uh, never know, but so this, this is yeah, yeah this kind ahead, of the, low, the low point, you know, or obviously, there's many low points for this family mm-hmm, in the story, mm-hmm. but this is a very low point, and this is where the hotel starts, you know, showing itself more and yeah. playing its hand more. This is where you get that uh, Lloyd reveal, you, you get uh, McCready having his conversation with um, with Bob T, and essentially, the hotel is is telling him, It's like, listen we're, you know, we're all together, you know, now you can always be together. And, you know, I hear drowning is a pretty, uh, painless way to go out, you Mm -hmm. know, and they're implanting this idea of like, well, your, your boy is here, you know, why don't you uh, just make, you know, why don't you just stay here with us forever? You know, that, that's, that's the, the ask. And at the same time you have Richard, um, you know, like he's walking through the, the uh, Colorado lounge and the, the, the party is, is happening. And, and this is, you throw in a little uh, Easter egg of the photo being taken that we will be seen. So it's like playing with time in a weird way. Yeah. Uh, it's all, you, uh, all
2: yeah. kind of starting to come together. And I do think time right. is slipping here in some way. Cause McCready, I, I love, if I may say like, I remember I worked hard on this, this speech that McCready, give so what happens is he goes in and and you know and we expect a big scene with him and Lloyd and Lloyd gives him a drink gives Bob T a drink and says oh the man in the corner sent it over and he goes over and he talks to McCready and McCready explains about you know what happened on the the mountain and how his family was trapped and 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 you know everybody was looking at him to provide some food or whatever and and there was this this baby (laughs) <laughs> um, a, a baby a whaling and he, and the wolves are coming in and all of this. And he, he, you know, brained his own, and he says, I brained it. You know, that wretched baby screams, I brained it. it hit a, 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 a against of, the a tree. A, yeah. Yes. A bear bark tree. And, and he like basically fed this baby to his family. I mean, that is a horrific act. Okay. Yeah. you know, and he says, that was the cost of the deed. Me and my family, we paid for this land in blood husband against wife father against the son that's the true price of the claim and so bob mm-hmm. t realizes that's what's what's going on here that you know it's kind of this family um that the the like you said before the mountain wants families i i worked on that mccready speech i think for like a solid week just wrote that script uh, that the you know those two pages over and over mm-hmm. and um and then Richard goes goes you know very simple horror thing. He's playing you know he's hitting the croquet uh, the croquet ball with a mallet, and then mm-hmm. you know the ball comes back to him or whatever. Yeah. Something's in the, in the hedge. You start getting a sense of of you know Bob T is gonna you know kill Sarah and all of this stuff, and the hotel is escalating things. It's fucking like yeah.
1: That. The hotel is up to some serious so so at this then point.
2: so then what I did what I did was you have the the gold room right and yeah. we have the the Easter egg you're talking about is that the 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 famous photograph from The Shining is clearly taken from above like yeah. someone up on a ladder so I had the photographer taking that picture, Bob T walks in and there's all these people suddenly there. And this guy's taking the picture and the ladder would block where Jack Nicholson would be standing. Right. So the audience would actually, I think be twisting in their seat, trying to say, get out of the way, get out of the way. And And that was kind of like, The one Easter egg I felt I had to have, you know, Mm -hmm. and I felt like that would be fun, but I didn't want to, you know, cast a young Jack Nicholson or whatever, especially if in my dream, Jack Nicholson was just sitting, you know, at the table playing McCready. So that, that was my fantasy. So, um,
0: and I could actually, especially in this era, you know, because this was 2014. Yeah. So like this, I, I could imagine that being appealing to Jack to come in, do this one, like, meaty monologue where he doesn't have to, you know, he can nod to the thing that he had done with Kubrick, which I'm sure he's proud of and whatnot, you know, and, and looks back fondly in that time without having to repeat anything he's done. I, I think that would have been like kind of an all-timer moment if if uh, all the pieces could you been imagine? I mean, good fun. lord. Uh-huh.
1: And that mm. speech itself, my God, it's like, it reads like Cormac McCarthy. Right. It, is oh, just, it is so bleak and just... <laughs> awful the gravity of that moment would have been just incredible you know I, even if you didn't get jack i mean if you got jack holy shit but even without jack it's 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 a moment you hear a good performer deliver that that speech and uh mean it yeah that would have that would have stopped the movie well not stop the movie right in its tracks but certainly the audience
2: but yeah. well, thank you for saying that. I think I would have been uh, the way it's written is that it was for the actor. You know, right. there's a version of that where you're cutting back to a flashback or some images and putting that in. I've just felt sure. no. This guy sitting at a table with McCready and the, you know these two men trapped by the hook. You know, one guy has lost his family and be responsible and talked about you know killing his family or you know killing his child and stuff that's going to resonate with Bob T you know, he blames himself for his son's death, you know, all of this. And so, so I think if you had two great actors, that scene would stand by itself and you didn't need anything else. You know, you could kind of just let, turn the actors loose. And, and, uh, you know, I like I I like when you can do that, not, not do a lot of bells and whistles, you know, just, just totally stage. And it's literally just two guys having a drink sitting at a bar. And I think, I think that's, one of the scariest scenes in the you know script to me.
1: It's it, everything you need is right there. And the confession itself is so, again, so powerful mm-hmm. that you don't you don't need those bells and whistles if mm-hmm. yeah, if you uh, if you yeah, hire it, right on whoever's whoever's delivering that. I'm wondering did you have any moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Robert Shaw, Indianapolis. Totally. totally. Did, do you recall having any conversations with romantic about how he might have shot that scene? Uh, I'm, I'm picturing like a slow push in on McCready and he's just basically in the shadows. I'm pi- in fact I'm picturing Nicholson like in those early scenes in The Departed where it's like it's it's Jack. You know it's Jack, but also his face is hidden in shadow, just kind of like back in a back booth. That's where my mind goes with that. But you could just as just as easily shoot it from an angle where it's two guys sitting at a table.
2: No, we 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 hadn't um Mark and I hadn't gotten that far. You know, I remember there was some you know, we were kind of still developing his version you know which was again more less gilded age and more frontier you know what i mean right right um so we were kind of playing around with some story beats there we hadn't gotten into particular shots or anything right right on
0: um yeah so from this point forward you have richard uh realizes what's going on that is his mom's in danger Mm -hmm. and he uh starts doing the smart thing and what you kind of hear in in the shining of what the Grady twins were starting to do, where he decides he's going to go burn the hotel down and he starts lighting fires around the hotel. And his dad is kind of in full on Jack Torrance mode at this point. He's, he's, uh, he's taken his wife and drawn her a lovely bath and, uh, and rusted her beneath the waters and also horrific by yeah the way. just a slow yeah he can't do anything about it there's no uh what lies beneath uh last minute save here this uh well that's the thing maybe yeah.
1: we should talk about that sequence a little bit yeah. because like that that's the thing about it you think like well surely the kid's gonna burst into the room right. and save the mom at the last second or or surely this will happen or that mm-hmm. will happen no it doesn't happen Straight <laughs> up, drowned that paralyzed lady in a bathtub. That is, mm-hmm. and and That's not nice. this is, it's it is not nice at cool. all. This is on the heels of McCready's speech, mm-hmm. on the heels uh, then upon the um the you know the the freezer scene, yeah, um, which is itself upon the heels of and so on and so forth. Like <laughs> yeah. at a certain point, did you ever just wonder, like maybe I'm going a
2: little dark here? Uh no. I mean I certainly know it's <laughs> I, I certainly know it's dark, but I feel like it's all earned, you know? Yeah, and I do totally. I do feel like I'm not being critical to be fair. No, clear. no, 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 no. But I feel like you know, you're trying to write a script that's going to, you know, stand out, you know, and, yeah. and in this one, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to write something that is going to, you know, attract the director like Mark. And I did, you yeah. know what I mean? You know, and every project we do, you know, you have to have that magical thinking, this is the one. So I really do kind of go for, you know, greatness, you know what I mean? And I really feel, no, I am I mean, you know, not so no, great you. script, yeah. but I'm trying to, you know, write something that I feel is just going to, I wanted this to be the scariest movie people had ever seen. You know, right. it couldn't be, no, it's not as scary as The Shining.
1: No, you got to leave a eh, spark. I said The Shining, yeah. but
2: this was a knockoff. I wanted to be, I wanted to write something and I felt like the material deserved it you know, wow, they went for it, you know, they went for it. And I think you can always, you know, you can always shoot something and pull back or you could always kind of, you know, cut out of something or soften the music or whatever. But I felt like, no, we really had to kind of grab the audience by the throat and, 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 you know, not let go for two hours. We really, so Mm -hmm. I, I really felt, I felt that was part of the, Challenge of this kind of historic IP, you know, this classic yeah. IP. This was this was something that I felt like we we can't take our foot off the gas, you know, right. and 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 if it's grounded in character, um, hopefully it'll it'll play, you know. Well,
1: I'm I'm familiar with the the stuff you've written. I was not surprised to discover the script had balls, no, don't. <laughs> and and I and I am not surprised now. To, to reread it and realize it has balls. So I just want to I just want to communicate that I admire your balls. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> um, I appreciate you that.
2: Know? someone does. <laughs> <laughs> you're thanks, you're absolutely
1: not fucking around here. And I think you I, I I again not a I have nothing critical to say about this script. I love mm-hmm. it. Um, thank you. And it is it is dark, but that's not a, a condemnation. It's it's it needs like, to be. You're really it, the origins of the Overlook can't here. be.
0: Can't be. Yeah. okay but, well but, you, you know, you know what, that ends me, on a hopeful note you know no, right.
2: let, let, let me let me say this that there's that there's um you know i did an episode of of walking dead in which you know lori um you know gives birth during a zombie attack you know what i mean <laughs> and and they have to perform a c-section and then her son has to kill her and stuff i don't know if you remember that episode but yeah. I remember when i I pitched that, people thought I was absolutely insane, that it was too dark. The audience would never go for it. And it turned into one of the most heartbreaking episodes. Yes, there's horror in it, but but I, so I think that horror audiences will, if they're emotionally invested, go for the heartbreak and and appreciate the horror. To me, the horror was becomes secondary. And, and it's about the, the heartbreak of what this family is going for. So maybe that's just the way I saw it, but that's the way I was definitely writing at this time. And, and that was something that I felt the audience would, would go with it. You know what I mean?
0: Totally. Totally. And, and it kind of underlines one of my other favorite things that you do here right at the end is Bob T has his little moment of being crazed, obviously, you know, he murders his wife. Um mm-hmm. and he's he's looking for a son, but he kind of he has a moment where he in his mind he snapped out of it
2: mm-hmm. and he
0: is calling and apologizing to his son. Oh, but the only so thing good. that you hear are grunts and stuff. And I, you instantly think of Jack in the maze. Yes. You yes. know, where you come <laughs> and he's doing like all these crazy yes. things. And then you go, Oh my God, in his mind, it's him going, Holy shit. No, it's me. It's me. I'm back. I'm sorry. you. I didn't mean to, you know, come let's, I'm, I'm trying to help you now, you know, but all you're hearing is, you know, is the grunts.
2: And I didn't make that leap. He, he's no that's exactly right that's the, that's the hotel fucking with them yeah so bob t is actually saying you know richard it's me papa i'm sorry i love you son please come here and and it says the hotel is fucking with him turning his father's words and i know an, but were English you connecting that to
1: i know but were you connecting that to jack do you think yes in- yes,
2: yes definitely
1: see that's the leap i didn't make that's mm-hmm. fucking, that recontextualizes the entire third fucking act of this <laughs> show. Yeah. That's amazing.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Holy f- shit.
0: Right.
1: I didn't think I could be more pissed off about this not being a movie. So so then Richard <laughs>
2: so then Richard kills Bob T. He kills his own father. Richard's yes. like the sweetest the sweetest one in the entire thing, and he kills yeah. his own father. He thinks he's killing a monster. He thinks he's killing yeah. someone who's possessed. Sure, yeah. No the the hotel is is acting as is acting as a filter
0: mm-hmm.
2: between the the two, and so that so so it becomes like a a, a, a tragedy. Yeah. The audience sees what's really going on, but the the malevolent hotel has has been toying with them.
0: At this point, I'm reading it, going, "Okay, so you know, Richard, you know, this is if anybody's going to get out, it's going to be Richard. It's going to be this kid. You know, he's done the deed. He's burning the place down, <laughs> but then his fucking father grabs him before <laughs> in this in this like." As everything's burning and stops him from leaving, yeah. and you don't know if he's grabbing him, you know, trying to get him, or if it's just like a, you know, I love you, don't, don't leave me, I'm, you know, whatever mm-hmm. moment. And but he holds him long
2: enough for the fire to engulf
0: them all and kill them right. all. Yeah,
2: right. And so, so, so then after that, we have then Eliza returns, and no one's, you know, and now the hotel has been mysteriously rebuilt. I think the hotel rebuilt itself. And Eliza, the, the missing sister comes back and she, you know, is, is no one has heard of the Watsons or whatever. And then she's in the, the, you know, taking a bath, she's in the bathtub and then, you know, um, Sarah, the mom, you know, drowns her, you know, and, and, uh, Mm -hmm. so then I think at the end, you know, the thing that I was the kind of, um, it's the last line, you know, that, that. You know, we stay focused on Bob T., Sarah Boyd, and Richard greeting and serving guests. They are reunited together at last. The first family of the Overlook Hotel. That, to me, was what it was. And so that they can be together, (laughs) you know, by working as the bellhop and the cleric and the maid and everything. And that, to me, felt right about what this hotel was about, you know?
0: And and this is where you really underline that because uh, that guy Paris uh, comes in and he's the new owner. He's the one who was, you know, jealous of it back when it, you know, before the death of Boyd and was just like, holy shit, I really like this guy actually made something here. You know, you know, fuck him. Why is he successful? That was his point of view. And then he comes in at a certain point later to tell them that. Uh, since every they're, everything's being foreclosed on and nobody's coming in, like, I'm going to be buying this place. And apparently he does in that meantime. You know, he's like, I'm going to be, I think he says for 30 cents on the dollar, he's going to be able to get this guy's dreams. Uh, so sure enough, by the end of it, he's the new owner of the hotel and he has the run-in. He meets, meets yeah. up with... Bob T who was, uh, who was there. And he's just like, yeah, have I ever met you before? And he's just like, it's like, you know, he said, yes, I'm, I'm the caretaker. He is assumes the mantle of the first caretaker of the, of, of the hotel. Yeah, well, uh, Paris, says,
2: Paris says, I, I hired you. And Bob T says, no, sir, I've been here. I've always been here. I've always right. been here is, I think, a line from the the original thing. Yeah, yeah. Because you're sure. the, the caretaker. And so so yep. right away, Paris is searching his memory, it says, trying to place him. So we already get the sense that Paris is the next victim up. Yeah. You know, that that he and his family, his son, that that the hotel's, you know, the oh, fresh blood for the hotel. Yeah, you right, 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 right. Uh, Here's a nerdy question. Um,
1: When Richard like burns the hotel Mm -hmm. between that and the opening that we see under Paris, isn't the implication that, you know, someone, maybe Paris himself, like came back to the hotel after the weather cleared and found it pristine. But are there dead bodies in it?
2: No, I think, I think the, no, I think they're, they're gone. You know, I, uh, I think, I think the hotel, um, you know, cleans itself in some way, builds itself, you know, so if it's uh, able to, right. So he thinks they
0: just like disappeared.
2: I think think he doesn't know what to think. Yeah.
0: I think it it sounds to me like that the hotel is like almost wiping them from. From memory, like he, I hear vaguely that, recognizes but just like, it, but- I mean,
1: again, this is really nerdy, but like, wouldn't Paris have to go through the, like, the, the jump through the hoops of buying this property?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And if there were
1: no bodies, could the bank make that sale if, if that were the case?
2: That's a good you know? question. I would probably, now that you raise it, I would probably have to give him a line or something like that with the kids Uh, you know like he's talking to his son daniel right if you look at page Mm -hmm. 110 daniel's uh, just says no sir and yes sir right so he's obviously a boring character so i would probably maybe (laughs) you know look at the the head of that scene with paris and and kind of you know add something to it so that the audience um doesn't have that question you know what i mean because i don't i don't want the audience to suddenly be thrown out and go well wait a second you know before the the movie ends Uh, so it's it's worth you know polishing that line but but nobody raised that question so but it's a good question i'm not trying to poke holes No, (laughs) Um, no no it's a fair question i just hadn't thought of it you know i think it would i
1: but i do think it's more nefarious if the implication is that paris like i'm imagining pulling up one day coming back for like round two with Bob T and be like, all right, are you ready to sign this shit? And he's got a dead body here. One over here. This one has a kid next to it. You know, he's just like, Hmm, I'm going to sign this myself and make all this shit disappear. Mm. You know, that's, that's even more like, and then now that's his sin for taking the claim.
2: Yeah. And yeah, that yeah, would, yeah.
1: You know, that was, that was what I, in my head cannon, that's what I thought had gone on. But <laughs>
2: Let's say that did go on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, if it did a TV show, I would, I would, uh, you know, have that. But, nice. you know, yeah. yeah. I, just I can see there being,
0: it. there being a, you know, a world where he knows that he bought this property from, from a Bob T, you know, or whatever. But that also, when he's within the grounds of this thing, that he's confused about. Like what he looked like or who he was, And sure, like You sure. can have that knowledge. That's of, of that. over you, like yeah. The, and yeah, you know, and that's why he has that flicker of recognition. It's like I should know this person, you know, right? I should yeah, know this or, person. Or or you yeah.
2: have some scene where he forecloses elsewhere or whatever, and then he's driving up and it's not what he expects or something. He's coming yeah. in to take over. I'm going to slap this down in front of Bob and show him I have the deed or whatever, and then yeah. something else happens, you know, something like that. Uh, yeah that yeah, that raises
1: another question I had that when you were in writing this script are you picturing the overlook from the Kubrick version or are you picturing the Stanley Hotel from Mrs. Park
2: Uh you know what's funny is when I was writing this I went to the Stanley Hotel and I said I was writing this movie and they gave me the private uh my son and I stayed there they gave us the ghost tour just the oh, two nice. of us So I that heard was that kind shit of fun so so, I was thinking about the Kubrick thing, but I had already. Um, this was kind of interesting, at least to me. Um, I had already written the the flood sequence at the beginning, but then as we were driving there, I was like, "Oh my God, this is where the sequence takes place!" Like like <laughs> a flash flood in this area, you know, would really do exactly. It was kind of eerily like I had imagined it. You know, and it would do exactly what I thought it would do as, as I had envisioned it, you know, and written about it on the page. So, um, so I think it was kind of the setting was a little bit, was a combination of, of the two. But it, when I was interior in my mind, I was definitely in the Kubrick of it all. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That yeah
0: well there was the the script it was uh, uh you know Scott's not uh, bullshitting you when he's like oh this is really great and I tell people all the time that's good like it's it's definitely one that I went into honestly a little skeptical kind of in approve it mode again within that first thirty pages I was like totally on board and and I love what you do with it on the whole and how you twist expectation and you know to me it is kind of like an ideal version of, yes. of uh it serves what people want out of a movie like, you know, this, you know, based off of a movie as popular and as iconic as The Shining, but also doesn't give them exactly what they expect. So it gives them what they want without giving them what they expect. And and that, to me, is such a rare animal. And I know it's a bummer, you you know, you guys never got to make it, but I think you should be very proud of what you what you made. Absolutely. Well,
2: well thank you for saying that. And I, I just want to thank you guys for, you know, this time to talk about it. You know, I mean, as as a writer, you know you mentioned before that we all have ten scripts that uh, never get done, and so to to have this, you know, thing that's been you know sitting forgotten for so long, and then to have you know you respond to it this way and to talk about it so thoughtfully, yeah, it, it really is an honor. You know, it, it really is something that as a writer you know, you work hard on this for, for a while and then it's forgotten or whatever. And so to to be able to not just discuss it, but to have it uh, appreciated um, so thoughtfully, like you guys are doing, is, is I, I'm really grateful for that. And I don't take that lightly. So so I, I, I sincerely, you know, thank you for reaching out and for the time and for just, you know, caring about it. So I, I'm really appreciative. Thank you. Hey man, don't get me choked up on my own show. Okay, it's gonna be. You can edit it no, out. Don't worry about it.
1: <laughs> um, there's nothing happening with this, right? Like you Not don't that think I know of. No, any chance of a, a resurgence of it?
2: I would love to do it, but you know, maybe somebody will hear this or whatever. But um, I don't know what's happening.
1: Well, thank you so much for thank you spending the time to to talk to us about this. You you say it's an honor the honor is all ours this is <laughs> this is tremendous work and um you know i wish it was something that you know all king fans could experience but you know this is the way the business goes sometimes mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate but uh hopefully we we've, we've captured a little bit of it for our listeners to you know sort of respond to
2: thank you, thank you for being here and and willing to do this well thanks for having <clears> me i really had a great time so thank you so much i appreciate it
0: Many thanks to Glenn Mazera for joining us yet again and breaking our hearts one more time about another really cool sounding Stephen King thing that he poured his whole soul, his blood, sweat and tears in and uh, and unfortunately had to sacrifice to the to the the gods of unmade cool shit. We got to get one of these Glenn projects made. I need no shit. Yeah, yeah. no. I, I really hope because we we talk a little bit on the show about how. There's, you know, potential in there for a really good TV show. And Mm -hmm. I guess it all depends on what J.J. Abrams' Overlook project is doing. Right, right. If, you know, if that's uh, dead in the water, maybe Glenn has a shot and maybe somebody will listen to this much like what happened with Mr. Brian Fuller. Somebody listened to him talking about Christine. He said, you know what? That guy should do a Christine movie. And look, look what happened. The King cast is a uniter, not a divider. That is a true
1: thing. We're here to facilitate new Stephen King projects on top of just talking about them endlessly.
0: Well, we need to feed the beast. That's how we keep the show going. We need to make more.
1: Instead of like booking guests, we're like trying to book projects for for potential
0: guests. (laughs) Well, we have to because, you know, when we don't, we end up having to do episodes on, say, The Mangler 2, which, guess what? Guess what we're doing next week, guys?
1: That's right. It's The Mangler 2. Now, um, some of you will recall on our previous Mangler episode, we had comedian and author DC Pearson on to talk about that Uh, singular Toby Hooper film DC uh, insisted on coming back to well, to continue the trilogy. We're now talking about the third one. Um, (laughs) So once a year, you're probably going to get DC Pearson popping up (laughs) to talk Mankler with us. (laughs) We had quite a a, a journey towards actually finding copies of this that we could watch, which we talk about on the show. Um, And then we essentially, walk you through the plot of the Mangler two. And it is much in the same way that the original Mangler episode went uh, way more fun to talk about than it is to watch. So uh, (laughs) you will reap the rewards of that while we had to actually sit and watch this thing.
0: Uh, That is a hundred percent accurate. I can, I can can tell you guys that Um, for those who don't know the Mangler two is a real movie that exists starring Lance Henriksen. The Canadians apparently decided they wanted uh, their own Mangler (laughs) they wanted their own mangler to call their own and so they hired lance henrickson brought it up to canada and decided we're done with laundry presses so we're going to make the mangler computer virus and uh this was made in the height of of uh hollywood's excitement with computers so it's a whole different beast it is really bad and a whole lot of fun to talk about so uh dc kills it it's going to be really fun Uh, yes you guys are in for a treat next week
1: and speaking of bad Stephen King movies and having fun with them, um, it's just about time for January's Patreon-exclusive commentary track, which is due to hit the Patreon this Friday, if all goes according to plan. We have admittedly been playing a little bit of catch-up over here as uh, I got through my my COVID spell and getting back to work and rescheduling and things have been moving around. It's been a lot of shenanigans going on over here behind hmm. the scenes. Uh we are 95% sure <laughs> that we will have this locked and loaded for you on Friday, but on the off chance that uh, we don't, we're going to hold off on telling you who the guests are, but we will tell you the title. Uh, Eric, would you like to do the honors?
0: Sure. Uh, we are going to be doing a full commentary from minute one to the very end. The bitter end. The bitter end. And I'm still kind of pissed off that, that uh, I've agreed to, to do this. We're doing sell which is <laughs> one of I'm the... I'm so mad I've got to watch it again. It, it's le- legitimately it. one of the worst Stephen King movies um, that, that's ever been made. But you know what? We have a really good track record since the Dreamcatcher commentary we did is still one of our, our listeners and our patrons' favorite things that we've ever done over there. So mm-hmm. uh, we're hoping to strike some of that magic again by talking about a, a, a really depressingly bad movie <laughs> yes. and doing it with some funny people. We, we can't say that uh, whether or not we get the people that have already agreed to do it or not, we will have somebody who will be in there to help us make light of that very dire situation of having to sit mm-hmm. through and cell one you more know, time. Treat it
1: like a goddamn pinata, folks, <laughs> just as it was meant to be treated. We do not like this movie and we are coming out swinging with a grudge. Mm-hmm. Sorry, anyone involved with Cell. If we ever try to get Q second on the show, we got to make sure he never hears this.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. We'll just uh, have to send him all the love that we have for 1408 and his like yes. two minutes and stand by me. Absolutely. <laughs> that's all he needs to know. Yeah. Or maybe we can, uh, you know, if our, our current guests fall out, maybe we reach out like last minute and then go to, you know, I just shoot an email to dot <laughs> com. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's his God, his email address.
1: Not say that on air. <laughs> <laughs> leave that out. Just leave it in, but believe it. How f- that, f- how fun would it, it be if I actually did that. just guess
0: John Cusack's? Uh, well, that's email the address. thing.
1: Like people don't realize that. There's kind of a trick to that, you know, that a lot of famous people tend to have that set up for their email yeah. addresses. And um, they either have we email shouldn't be disseminating that information.
0: <laughs> they either have email addresses that are like the default passwords that your phone will come up with, you know, your strong passwords. It will either be some weird collection uh, of Letters and numbers that somehow equal famous person, uh, or it'll just be their name at something.com.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's one of those two. It's 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 uh it's never something like somewhere in the middle.
1: I'll tell just a little funny side note here is that some years ago, I managed to acquire Quentin Tarantino's then email address. Mm. And uh, I shit you not. It was from uh, an AOL account. It was at <laughs> AOL.com. <laughs> There, and that I, shit is so funny to me. Like I'm never gonna get over it.
0: It still exists. There's there's one very well known person that uh that that I correspond with every once in a while. Still rocking his AOL. And wow. Hasn't let it go. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, if it ain't broke, I guess. <laughs>
0: but. <laughs> but yeah, for sure we have Cell no matter what on Friday. Um, and next Wednesday we have DC Pearson returning for round number two with Mister Mangler.
1: Everything Eric just said is correct, and uh, we will see you Friday and next week, folks.
0: The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.